Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 60, Conquest. Now, there's no new Patreon supporters this week. Well, these last couple days since I recorded the last episode, so we'll move right into things. Last time, following his victory in the Ottoman Civil War, Sultan Mehmed I attempted to make peace with most of his neighbors and focus on getting the empire back into top shape internally. However, circumstances had other plans. First, a revolt on the part of the religious leader, Bedreddin, took four years to put down. Fighting with Serbia and Wallachia also brought further chaos to Mehmet's eight years ruling the empire before his death. Then, when his son takes over, Mehmet's exiled brother leads a revolt against him. Once that revolt was put down, Murad II was finally the undisputed sultan at 17 years old, but with many enemies. Now, the Ottoman Empire has enemies everywhere. Also, the death of Stefan Lazarevich has weakened Serbia, leaving that state with an uncertain future serving its two masters, Hungary and the Ottomans. Today's episode begins in Thessalonica, back in 1422 when the siege of that city by the Ottomans began. Now, the Thessalonians sent an envoy, and another envoy, and another envoy to Constantinople begging for help. But their pleas went unanswered. So the commander of the city asked the population to contribute to a fund to pay for its defense. The nobles refused outright, while the common people actually rioted in favor of the deal the Ottomans had offered. Whereby, if the city commander left the city, then it would be conquered and the people would not be harmed. In other words, nobody, not even the population of the city itself, seemed willing to save Thessalonica. But, as you'll recall, a year into the siege, the Byzantines came up with a plan. They realized, ah, we can sell the city to Venice for 50,000 ducats. And in return, the Venetians, well, they had to respect the city's religion. You know, they were Orthodox, Venetians were Catholic, and the property of its citizens. Ultimately, after some concerns that accepting the deal might lead to a trade war with the Ottomans, Venice said yes. They immediately set about gathering mercenaries to help defend their new possession, as well as meeting with Sultan Murad to see if they could negotiate some end to the siege. The man they sent to negotiate with Murad, well, he was arrested and imprisoned. That should probably tell you how the Sultan felt about Venice taking over the city that he was trying to conquer. Murad reportedly told the Venetian envoys the following, quote, This city is my paternal property. My grandfather, Bayezid, by the might of his hand, wrested her from the Romans. Had the Romans prevailed over me, they would have cause to exclaim, He is unjust, 
but you are Latins from Italy. Why have you trespassed into these parts? You have the choice of withdrawing. If you do not, I will come post-haste. End quote. The Venetians, however, were still determined to settle things without more conflict. So they tried a new strategy. One naval commander was going to go attack the Dardanelles and hamper Ottoman attempts to ferry more soldiers from Anatolia into Europe to reinforce the garrison at the city, or the garrison of the siege. At the same time, a new envoy would offer the Ottomans a new deal. Recognition of Venetian sovereignty over Thessalonica and the surrounding territories in exchange for a generous annual tribute. And so, attempts by the Venetians to negotiate dragged on for six years while both sides attacked each other by sea. The Venetians even recruited Turkish bailiffs in Anatolia to work with them on attacking the Ottomans from the rear to kind of strengthen their negotiating position. This, eventually, led the Ottomans to ally with Genoa in response. Genoa, of course, being Venice's great ally in the Mediterranean trade wars. During this time, as I mentioned in the previous episode, the Byzantines themselves signed a peace treaty with the Ottomans, which restricted their territory to basically the city of Constantinople and a little bit of land directly around it, while, of course, forcing them to pay tribute once again. In the meantime, Venice was still trying to pull together more negotiating leverage, so they tried to get European powers to start another crusade against the Ottomans. However, because the main power who would have participated in such a crusade was Hungary, and Sigismund was still very angry at Venice because of their rivalry in Dalmatia, Dalmatia and Venetian support for a rival to the Hungarian throne, well, let's just say a crusade wasn't going to happen. Emperor John VIII in Constantinople and King Vladislav II of Poland tried to convince Hungary and Venice to bury the hatchet, to, to come to peace with each other so they could join in fighting the Ottomans, but neither side would budge. By 1426, things were heating up. The Venetians almost came to an agreement with the Ottomans, but the deal fell apart at the last moment. In the meantime, the Ottomans mounted a fierce attack on the city with 30,000 soldiers. But with the help of Venetian galleys, the city held on. Still, as the years dragged on, the Venetians offered more and more money to the Ottomans, but Murad wasn't interested. He felt that Thessalonica was his. It was as simple as that. No amount of money was going to take away the pride he had and his idea that, well, what's his was his, rightfully so. When the latest Venetian envoy was told to surrender the city to Murad in 1427, the envoy replied that he didn't have the authority, and so he was thrown into a cell to die like his predecessor had. By 1428, as the conflict spread into Albania, remember many Albanian lords had changed allegiance over to the Venetians after the Battle of Ankara, leading the Ottomans to kind of fight to regain their influence there. Well, that year, the Venetians finally accepted that, well, these little proxy wars and all this maneuvering and the negotiation wasn't going to work. This situation called for a full-scale war. So they formed a more formal alliance 
the Karmanids, an Anatolian Beylik in southeastern Anatolia, as well as with the king of Cyprus. But this alliance had a bit of a different effect, actually serving to bring the Ottomans into a more formal alliance with the other Muslim power of the eastern Mediterranean, the Mamluks of Egypt. So, in 1429, Sharuk, the son of Timur, won a great victory in eastern Anatolia, leaving the path open for him to follow in his father's footsteps and attack the Ottomans and or the Mamluks. Remember, his father had kind of attacked both of them. Now, the V-Nations were very excited. This was great news. They hoped it would push the Ottomans to the negotiating table, just as they hoped a crusade might. But instead, it simply pushed Murad to finish off Thessalonica quickly so he could then concentrate his forces to face this threat in the east. So really it had, well, kind of the opposite effect. Now by this time, famine was prevailing in the city. Mercenaries who ran out of food simply defected to the Ottomans, while their defenders sold their weapons for food. Those who could fled to Constantinople, and so the city's population had declined by about half since the beginning of the long siege. By the time Murad approached the city at the head of an army in 1230, it was starving and divided. He sent several requests for surrender as he prepared for a full assault. But despite the fact that most of the city's population was in favor of surrendering, the Venetians running the show were not having it. They had fought long and they had fought hard to keep the city, just as hard as Murad had fought to take it. And so both sides stood their ground, and the offer was rejected. But soon, the Venetians were informed that the Ottomans were floating warships down the river Vardar to attack the city from that direction. The Venetian galleys in the harbor were unmanned as all available soldiers were defending the walls. The Venetians quickly realized that the Ottomans were therefore close to taking control of the sea and preventing any possible retreat. So the next day, as the Ottomans began their attack, the Venetians quietly fled the city. It should come as no surprise that the defenders were totally unable to defend Thessalonica any longer. The Ottomans stormed in, massacred the population, and plundered the city for three days. By the end, the city had about 10% of the population it had supported before the siege. Many of those who remained converted to Islam. Now, there's no evidence that these conversions were forced, and as I'll mention many times, there were plenty of reasons for new Ottoman subjects to convert. But this happened. Then, to repopulate the city, the Ottomans brought in both Christians and Muslims from around Macedonia to occupy empty homes, get the city back on track. But the city was also settled by a Turkish population, a population which would centuries into the future, give birth to modern Turkey's most revered hero, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. But overall, what's important to remember here is that Thessalonica was really and truly gone, and that this had been the second city of the Byzantine Empire for basically as long as it had existed, and that the Byzantine Empire was truly now Constantinople, and only Constantinople. So, with the loss of Thessalonica, peace returned to the Venetians and the Ottomans. 
well, mostly. There would still be some sporadic fighting between them in Albania, but the Ottomans had won the Aegean. A final treaty was signed in 1432. Around that time, Murad focused his forces to attack Albania and the despotate of Epirus. Now, you might be asking what happened to that potential attack from Timur's son off in the east. Well, in short, his empire suffered from attacks from various steppe peoples in the 1430s. And so while that was a grave threat at the moment, it kind of just never materialized and turned into anything. And so Ottoman forces, under the commander of the governor of Skopje, marched west and laid siege to Durazzo, a.k.a. Drakium, a.k.a. Duras. You've heard me mention it many times, which at this moment was unsurprisingly controlled by Venice. Venetian forces resisted the siege, but the region was still plundered. Venice still desired a broader anti-Ottoman alliance, and the Serbs would certainly have helped in such a war, but George Brankovic, the new leader of Serbia after the death of Stefan Lazarevic, well, he knew that his peace with the Ottomans was hard won, and he had no desire to give it up to help Venice. In fact, he sent one of his sons to assist the Ottomans in their siege of Durazzo as part of his vassal duties. And so, well, in any case, George at the time was busy. He was constructing a mighty new fortress capital for Serbia at Smederovo, at the confluence of the Danube and Morava rivers, just downstream from Belgrade, which now belonged to Hungary. I'm going to include a photo on the website because it's quite an impressive fortress, even today, forming a huge triangle with two sides being the two rivers and the final side being heavily fortified and facing land. Now, at the same time, the Ottomans were putting significant efforts into developing their own fortress city on the new Serbian-Ottoman border. This city, it was planned, could serve as a base of operations as the Ottomans attacked further north. Meanwhile, in 1432, the Ottomans invaded Wallachia. The two countries had been at peace following a treaty signed four years earlier, but Murad saw an opportunity to eliminate the Wallachians, who had been, well, you probably noticed, quite a pain for the Ottomans for several decades. The Ottomans keep invading and trying to attack Wallachia, but even though they have a very small army, they always sort of end up attacking them in a mountain pass somewhere and just hit-and-run tactics. They, they never seem to be able to really conquer them and get rid of them. And so a massive invasion defeated the Wallachians and managed to kill their leader, Dan II. Now, he had reigned over Wallachia five separate times and been briefly deposed and then returning and briefly deposed and returning over and over. But now he was dead, and with his dead, he was succeeded by his cousin, Alexandru I Aldea. However, in spite of this victory by the Ottomans, they still couldn't manage to install their own candidate to rule Wallachia in order to, you know, make it a vassal state or outright conquer it. So they beat the army, they defeated the leader, but they couldn't manage to negotiate with the successor. They couldn't manage to kind of get much out of the, out of the victory. So it's why it's kind of, it's hard to tell, but it seems like the Ottomans... Again, they really have trouble fighting the Wallachians. And even when the Ottomans win, they're hesitant to press their advantage in this region. And so Wallachia manages to hold on. Still, there was another reason why Murad was tempering his ambitions in Wallachia. And that was what was happening in Albania. 
Now, I've mentioned several times that after the Battle of Ankara, many Albanian nobles switched allegiances from the Ottomans to the Venetians. Then, once the Ottomans began reasserting control in the area, shockingly, they weren't too eager to give control of those Albanian or give control back to those Albanian nobles. You know, so the Ottomans faced a problem, right? The the people running the show in this region had betrayed them, and now they needed new people to run the show. So, by the early 1430s, about three quarters of all the timars, a timar is an amount of land which can produce a set amount of tax revenue. So when the Ottomans conquer a place, they divide it into timars, which are given out as spoils to people who then are loyal to the Ottomans. Um, so yeah, these people, they, they could be given to soldiers instead of paying them, or they can be given to sp- uh, spahis so they can fund themselves to be Ottoman cavalry. Anyways, that's what a timar is, just a piece of land which is valuable, and the Ottomans give it to you, and in exchange, you have to give the Ottomans stuff. So anyways, three quarters of the timars, three quarters of the valuable land, belong to Ottoman spahi cavalry and not to local Albanians. So to, to recap there, you know, the Ottomans didn't trust the, the Ottoman or the Albanian nobles, and so they were nearly all replaced. So yeah, at the same time, the Ottomans, they by doing this, they kind of markedly increased taxation and imposed the devshirme, or the blood tax, taking young boys, uh, Christian boys, converting them to Islam, making them soldiers, uh, or they could be, uh, what do you call bureaucrats as well, serving the sultan. But so they increased taxes, they imposed the devshirme in Albania, and in response, many Albanian nobles, as well as regular people, did what people in that region have always done and will do very often in response to this kind of external control, they run off into the remote mountains. Now, I can say I have traveled through the very remote mountains of northern Albania, and I can attest that they are harsh, they are remote, they are unforgiving. I will never forget riding in a bus uh, on my way into Kosovo from uh, from Skodr in Albania and watching this bus driver sort of pass cars just before blind turns and just thinking, well, my life is in this guy's hands, there's not much to do about it. But Point is, you're not going to easily pursue people into these mountains to find them. So a bunch of Albanians, nobles and regular people, they go into the mountains to prepare for a revolt because they've had it. They don't like that the Ottomans replaced the nobles. They don't like the Ottoman taxes. They don't like the Devshirme. And so in 1432, the revolt began. And it began with an Albanian noble named Andrew Theopa, who revolted and defeated a small Ottoman detachment which had been sent to subdue him. Now, based in part on this victory and in part on a false rumor that Sultan Murad II had died, disaffected nobles raised armies all around the region and began a full-scale revolt. That winter, the Ottomans gathered 10,000 soldiers to put it down. But that army was ambushed and defeated. Though the rebels continued to expand, they soon conquered the fortress and the nearby capital of the region at Jirokastar. Another quick story from my time in Albania, I once woke up at 5 in the morning to catch a bus to Jirokastar from Berat in central Albania, which is gorgeous. If you ever can go to Berat, Berat is an amazing place. There's a village inside of a thousand-year-old fortress on a hill in the middle of it. It's stunning. But I woke up at 5 a.m., froze my butt off, only to realize that that bus doesn't run on Sundays. It was eight years ago, and I sadly have still not made it back to Jirokastar, which is just sad for me. But point is, 
quick tourism thing, if you can get to like central and southern, really all of Albania, it's, it's quite a remarkable place. I've been several times. Anyways, by the next year, 1433, yet another Ottoman army was going to Albania, pillaging the countryside and subduing rebels wherever they could be found. In particular, one man whose son, though called back home to assist in the rebellion, remained in service to the Ottomans in Anatolia, was kind of, so this man's son was not participating in the revolt. And that man's name, the son, was Skenderbeck. Now, just remember that name because he's going to be very important. Also around this time, Venice was considering whether or not they should intervene in Albania and whether this revolt and its suppression posed a threat to their territories in the north. Now, ultimately, Venice decided it was best not to get involved. But if you want to see where all these territories were, there's a map on the uh, website. So over the next three years, the Ottomans gradually raised more armies in neighboring territories, and one by one they put down each rebel leader and slowly put the whole thing down. Sigismund, who, by the way, had been crowned Holy Roman Emperor in 1433, so, you know, mazel tov, good for you. Uh, well, Sigismund was considering an alliance with these rebels. And, of all people, he sent Frusian, who you'll remember was the last remaining member of the Bulgarian royal family, to go negotiate a possible deal with these Albanians. But the deal fell through, and like the Venetians, the rest of Europe decided not to aid the Albanians in their revolt. John Fine describes how the Ottomans finished off the revolt. Quote, In 1436, the Ottomans sent a massive army into Albania that finally put down the revolt. The campaign was savage, marked by massacres and the erection of pyramids of skulls. End quote. So you can imagine after the, the years during which this revolt dragged on, the Ottomans had very little to no patience for it. And so they were exceptionally brutal in their putting down of the revolt. But as we'll see, the Albanians had good memories and they were not going to forget how they were treated. Because however the, however the Ottomans tried to rule this land, the Albanians will always have those mountains. They will always know the mountains better than the Ottomans. And they will always be ready to sort of, well, fight for what they think is theirs. Still, with the end of the revolt, the Ottomans left their own spahis in power, while the Albanian nobles who had remained loyal were given even more land. On the other hand, they sent many sons off to Edirne as hostages at the same time. So, well, loyal Albanians were rewarded, but not trusted. Murad was not going to take any more risks in Albania. He was done with that. He had been betrayed by them way too many times over the previous years. Yep, for all the Ottoman successes there, some rebels still fought on in some of the more remote corners of the region. Now that same year, Alexander I Aldea, the Voivoda of Wallachia, who I just mentioned, well, uh, he died after just five years on the throne. So his half-brother, the illegitimate son of Mircea I, took over. His name was Vlad II Dracul, father to the man who history, popular culture, and, uh, yeah, as we all know, as Dracula. So Dracula's father becomes the new Voivoda. And he's got Hungarian support. Remember, his name Dracul comes from being a member of the Order of the Dragon, which is an order to protect the King of Hungary. But just a year later, that king, Sigismund, who was 
gonna list these off. Holy Roman Emperor, King of Hungary and Croatia, King of Germany and King of Bohemia, died at the ripe old age of 69. This meant that Vlad Dracul could no longer rely on the Hungarians to back him up. And so, under pressure, he finally acquiesced and became an Ottoman vassal. Now, random fact while I was researching this bit, I noticed that Sigismund is portrayed in a 2010 German movie called, quote, The Whore. Didn't see the movie, don't really remember what it was about, but I just thought it was funny that Sigismund is a character in this film. Anyways, that's so when Sigismund dies, he has one daughter and no sons. And so his chosen successor is his son-in-law, Albert V, Duke of Austria. And so, as also I'll mention quickly, as a result of the death of Sigismund, the House of Luxembourg, which was his very famous prominent noble house, is extinguished. So now we've got Albert on the throne. And well, just after he takes over, he puts pressure on George Brankovich to give Smedovo to the Hungarians because they say, well, we can defend it against the Ottomans better. Remember, this is this big, fancy, nice fortress capital that George has been building. Now, it's not entirely clear what George said, but he may have given it up to the Hungarians. He may have not. But the Ottomans, well, they were busy invading Transylvania now that they could get through Wallachia, and now that Hungary was weaker, having seen the death of Sigismund. And so, yeah, essentially, so maybe the Hungarians are expanding into, into Serbia, but the Ottomans are going haywire in Wallachia and in Transylvania. But Brankovic and Vlad Dracul weren't the only ones scared of the Ottomans, because that same year, Emperor John VIII and his patriarch, as well as many bishops, well, they left Constantinople or the Council of Florence, where they intended to negotiate that long, 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 long sought-after union between the Eastern and Western churches, an attempt to save the Byzantine Empire. Again, it's essentially just the city of Constantinople. And so the emperor knows that the city just simply cannot exist forever like this, that they can't resist the Ottomans on their own, they need help. And as has happened many times before, the Byzantine emperors are willing to join the churches but, as always, the people of Constantinople are strongly against this, as they've always been. Still, Emperor John knows that there's really not much else he can hope for, and so he's going to go try his best. Because no crusades are coming to save him, and even if they were, well, we know how those previous ones worked out. Now, unsurprisingly, the Pope and the Patriarch, well, they fought over minor issues of protocol and they fought over doctrinal points that the average person of faith would find, well, obscure. But none of this really seemed to matter much in Constantinople, where again, the population was known to say that a Turkish turban was preferable to a Latin tiara. So, well, you can see how they would have felt about this. In addition, many Byzantine citizens believed that the emperor's decline was actually a result of their own sins, and that therefore, the added sin of adopting a heretical Latin practice, well, that could only possibly make the situation even worse. So, while the Byzantines were off bickering in Rome, the Ottomans were on the offensive against Serbia. Now, again, whether Brankovic gave up his capital city or not, by 1439, the Ottomans had captured this impressive fortress after just three months of siege. George Brankovic fled to his estates in Hungary. While the Ottomans annexed the rest of Serbia, 
only the fortress of Novo Bordo in Kosovo held out. But within two years, it too fell to the Ottomans, who raised it to the ground. Now, the only independent Serbian lands were in Zeta, which is more or less modern Montenegro. Also, in 1439, King Albert of Hungary dies after just two years on the throne. Very anticlimactic, if I do say so myself. Also, in what will soon become a venerable tradition amongst Habsburgs, let's say um, Albert V wasn't uh, the, the most handsome guy, but also that he had just an obscenely long title. Now, if you want to see well, how he looked, uh, you can hop on the, uh, the, the Facebook page. I posted a photo of him. I'll probably also put one on the website. But this guy's title, which included King of Bulgaria, oddly enough, is also there. You should really go check it out. It's, it's a little ridiculous. But anyways, before he became King of Hungary, Albert, well, he forcibly impr- imprisoned and converted Austria's Jewish population. And really just, he was a bad king. He didn't do anything particularly nice and he died shortly after. So, well, that's that. But he also didn't have any children, but his wife was pregnant. So if crowning a child wasn't bad enough, now you're facing the problem of crowning an unborn child to be king of Hungary, just when the Ottomans were resurgent. So another fun fact, once that child is born, actually his name will be Ladislas the Posthumous, which really I think is one of the more amusing royal titles I've ever heard, just because, you know, he became king kind of after his father had already died. So anyways, with the death of Albert, the Hungarian throne was offered to King Vladislav III of Poland by Hungarian nobles who saw him as the best chance to resist the Ottomans. The king of Poland hesitated because many Polish nobles did not like the idea of him becoming king of Hungary as well. They wanted to, you know, many nobles, they want a balance of power between themselves and the king. But ultimately, the king of Poland saw that, well, if Hungary fell, Poland would be vulnerable to the Ottomans. He saw this great burden on himself, and he decided to take up the task. And so, with Vladislav III becoming king of Hungary, I'll conclude this episode. Next time, we'll see what becomes of this new Hungarian king's efforts to combat the growing Ottoman threat. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. And as always, Uspech. Or in English, good luck. <laughs>